Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business-minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxel. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxel's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics, from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. In this episode of Attorney Time, we are joined by Holly Troxel attorney, Phil McKay. Phil McKay is the chair of Holly Troxel's Patent Intellectual Property and Internet Groups. Phil has prepared and prosecuted hundreds of domestic and foreign patent applications. With over 20 years of experience, he helps clients achieve strategic business objectives, authors non-infringement and validity opinions, and provides strategic technology licensing and portfolio management counseling to numerous companies throughout the technology sector. Phil has also taken part in technology licensing negotiations involving companies ranging from small startups to some of the most well-known corporations in the world. In addition, as corporate patent counsel, he has helped establish the patent program policies and procedures used by a Fortune 100 corporation to create one of the largest patent portfolios in the Silicon Valley. He is licensed to practice law in California, Washington, the District of Columbia, and before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Hi, welcome to Attorney Time. This is Phil McKay again. I'm the patent chair at Holly Troxel here in Boise, Idaho, uh, continuing with our podcast series directed to patents. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the patent prosecution timeline and approximate cost and uh, going through some of that. That comes up a lot. Uh, I just want to, there's two disclaimers today instead of the usual one. The first is uh, the cost estimates are based on the fees charged by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. These change virtually every year. Uh, I've never seen them go down. Uh, so I'm basing it on the, the costs that went into effect in 2021. Uh, when we're recording this, uh, some of those costs could increase. And, and some of the costs this year increased significantly. So uh, don't rely completely on this presentation, uh, which is part of the next uh, disclaimer. Uh, you can go to the United States Patent and Trademark website and determine the exact costs or contact your patent attorney and they should be able to tell you readily. Uh, here comes the second disclaimer, my usual one. Uh, this presentation is for general information purposes only and does not represent any form of legal advice or counsel. The presentation is intended for individual inventors and co small or companies in general uh, that are new to the patenting process and desire an introduction to patent law concepts. Therefore, the discussion here is a simplified high-level discussion and is not any form of legal or academic analysis. Uh, patent law issues are, are extremely fact and circumstance specific. Therefore, the listener should not should seek out competent patent counsel for any specific patent questions or issues the listener might have. Okay, so let's talk about this patent process, and I'm going to, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you going in that from the time you call that patent attorney with your idea to when you have an issued patent that you can actually assert um, is, is going to be three to five years is what you should plan on. So patents take a long time to get issued. Uh, the good news is they last 20 years from the filing date, which I will get to. Uh, but keep in mind, this is not something where you're going to have a patent in hand a couple of months later. Um, and if you listen to some of the other podcasts, you can see uh, the, the reason you want to file early, even though you won't get a patent for three to five years. Uh, most of that involves disclosing the invention, trying to sell it, and so forth. Uh, and again, there's other podca podcasts directed to that. But today we're just going to talk about the timeline, and I'm going to walk you through your initial call to that patent attorney, 
uh, all the way through the uh, expiration of the patent. And I'll give you cost estimates at each stage, and in the end I'll give you a cost estimate for the whole process. So the way this is typically going to start is you're going to, one way or another, you're going to come in contact with a patent attorney and say, hey, I want to talk to somebody about patenting my invention. Um, and, and by the way, some of the things I'm going to discuss today are uh, specific to my department's way of doing this. Uh, generally, there'll be variations of it, uh, but the basic ideas will be there with any patent department in any patent firm. But uh, one of the things, one of the mechanisms that'll come into play quickly is an invention disclosure form. And what the purpose of the invention disclosure form is not really to completely describe the invention. And really, you shouldn't spend more than about a half hour filling this thing out. Uh, there'll be a series of questions in there uh, related to bar dates, which uh, if you go back to the podcast about not in lo losing your rights accidentally, it'll talk about bar dates. But they'll want to know when you first conceived of the invention, uh, anybody you've told about the invention, offers to sell the invention. Uh, so we can identify any problems with patent bar dates going in. So that's a big part of the invention disclosure form. The other part is to get an idea of the invention at a very high level so that one, uh, we can determine if we have the, uh, the, the, the technical expertise to help you. And within the department or the firm that you're dealing with, um, there might be attorneys that are best suited to your invention, and we're going to bring them in from the beginning. So, for instance, if I have a patent attorney or agent that has a biochemical background and your invention is in the biochemical space, I'm not going to send you one of my software patent attorneys. So the invention disclosure form, again, is just an initial indication of the idea of your invention and some of the specifics with the timeline of your invention. And uh, that usually gets filtered to uh, the partner and or associates uh, that might be working on this particular patent if it were to go forward. So once we have the invention disclosure form, we set up an initial meeting. Now, I'm the chair of my department. And the way my department operates is you're not charged for this initial meeting. We're trying to determine if this is a good match, and we're not going to bill you for that. So this initial meeting, we're going to ask you to give a high-level description of the invention. This is not a disclosure meeting, which I'll get to in a bit. But give us an idea of your innovative concept. And the reason for that is at the end of that meeting or shortly after that meeting, we're going to come back to you and give you, well, at least my department, we'll come back and give you a cap. We're going to come back and say, we think based on the complexity of your invention and what you've told us about it, that we can prepare this application for price X. Um, and my department, not all departments, but my department operates on a cap structure. Now, cap structure is different than a flat fee structure. If we come back and say, we think for attorney's fees, this is going to cost you X, and then we go off and it turns out we underestimated and we end up with 2x is the amount of time we have into this, uh, we will still charge you x because we agreed to that cap. On the other hand, and this is where it differs from a flat fee structure, if we overestimated, and it, this turns out to be a much easier invention to describe than we thought, and the fees come in at half of x, you won't be charged x, you'll be charged half of x. So it really is advantageous to the inventor, and it's, it's the way my department operates. Don't count on the fact that uh, all departments will operate that way. But we're going to come up with that cap. Out of that initial meeting, we really want to come up. Uh, again, we want to determine that it's a good fit, give you an opportunity to speak with us and see if 
you know, we're the people you want to work with. And also, uh, either at that meeting or, or shortly after that meeting, um, we can give you an idea of the attorney's costs. And if you throw in the filing fees, we can give you a pretty good idea of what the most this would cost. It could cost less, but the most it would cost. This is obviously beneficial in, in terms of accounting and budgeting. Um, and there you go. So if we come to agreement and say, yeah, I, I can deal with that cap and, and we're going to move forward, the next thing we're going to do really is a client intake. Uh, and, and that involves a conflicts check. The first thing we want to do is make sure that we're not representing your competition in any uh, adverse matters. Uh, and that basically we can represent you without stepping on any current client's feet uh, and causing problems. So basically we, like, we don't like to work with uh, two people in the same space. Uh, so we do that conflicts check. Assuming the conflicts check comes back clean, the next thing we do is we prepare what's called a legal services agreement. This is assuming you're a new client. The legal services agreement uh, basically sets forth more than anything else our obligations to the client, to the inventor, um, the only thing it really asks for back from the inventor is to, uh, you know, communicate with us, don't disappear, sign documents we need you to sign and return them, and pay us. Uh, so the uh, legal services agreement really is more of an obligation on us. The caps that we had agreed to will be set forth in that legal services agreement. We'll also talk about prosecution and the estimated costs for that. And so you'll know going in pretty much what you're going to be charged and how this is going to work. Um, in that legal services agreement, uh, if you're a new client to the firm, uh, you'll be asked to pay a deposit. Uh, that will also be set forth. The way that deposit is used will be set forth. So uh, the legal services agreement, again, is should be uh, a source of comfort, really, to the potential client and inventor. Once we have that legal services agreement signed and we've collected whatever deposit is being requested, um, then we're going to move forward with the full-blown disclosure meeting. Now the disclosure meeting is going to take a couple hours. And at the disclosure meeting, we're really going to go into your invention. We, these days, and frankly, long before COVID, uh, we do these by video conference with screen sharing. And we're going to come in and we're going to ask you to put up drawings or whatever you have on hand. And we're going to discuss for quite a while the details of your invention and, uh, and get an idea of what you're up to uh, at, a, at a very, well, the important level is what's called an enablement level so that one of skill in the art reading this application, once we write it, will understand how the invention works and what the invention is. Now, there's a line here between uh, a good patent attorney and, an, and a great patent attorney. And at this disclosure meeting, we're certainly going to have you describe your invention in detail as you envision it. And a good patent attorney will be able to take that and translate it sometimes from engineering into English and then from English into legalese. And that's sort of a transcribing, with a very, um, very technically skilled translation. Uh, and that good patent attorneys will be able to do that and do it. A great patent attorney is going to let you describe their in, your invention to them in detail, what you envision, and they're going to ask questions and they're going to look to what's called broaden your invention. So if you come to us and you tell me, my invention is a blue widget for doing X, 
We're going to spend a lot of time, once we understand the blue widget doing X, we're going to spend a lot of time saying, what other colors could there be? What other uh, variations on this could there be? Uh, would this work? Would that work? Now, one of the advantages to having done this for a long time is when an invention's presented to me, my mind and uh, is pretty good at going off and saying, well, that's great in this space. You know what? I think your invention will apply also in another space, and we should try to capture that. The whole idea here is to understand your invention at a level so that we can cast out this very large net and nobody can come along and see your idea and by making relatively simple or even sometimes complex changes uh, get around your patent. Uh, again, using the red widget for doing X, we're going to find out if there's green, yellow, uh, and purple widgets available and possible and those widgets might be used for doing X, Y, and Z. To put that in a little bit more tangible form, if your invention is directed to a uh, a car engine, say, uh, we're, we're first not going to restrict it to the car. We're going to go minimal all-wheeled vehicles. And then, you know, an internal combustion engine, if, what's, if that's what we're talking about, has applications in multiple fields. And it could be very well that your invention has advantages in multiple fields that you're not contemplating at the moment. But we're going to discuss that and try to capture the entire invention in all uh, embodiments and all applications. So once we get that disclosure meeting done, now the attorneys are going to go off and draft the application. It's a really good idea to give your attorneys four to eight weeks to prepare these applications. Sometimes that isn't possible, but really you want to give your attorneys time to think about the idea and to come up with some embodiments of their own and to broaden this out as much as possible. And the longer they can think about it and work on it, the better that's going to be done. Uh, uh, so give them four to eight weeks if you can to prepare this and then they're going to send back the draft. Now I'm going to speak a little bit for my department and the people that work in my department. Um, it's important to us that everybody understands we draft the application. We're not really looking to the inventors to write this. So when we send that draft out to you, it's going to be fairly complete. There might be minor questions in it as to ranges. For instance, if you tell us that some component is an inch and a half, we might come back and say, well, couldn't it really be between an inch and two inches? And very detailed, almost yes or no or specific number answers. Uh, those questions are okay. What uh, I will not accept out going to a draft uh, uh, from my department is how does it work? we were supposed to get that idea from the disclosure meeting. And we certainly shouldn't be looking to the inventors to write uh, descriptions of how a particular part works or the invention itself works. That's what you pay us to do, and we don't want to use a bunch of your time having you write. We're far more efficient at it. Uh, we're going to send out this draft, a very complete draft, and we're going to ask the inventor to read through it. And we really mean you should read through it. And as you're going through it, we, uh, you might have comments. Um, and you might ask for revisions. Now, these days, uh, I've been doing this for a long time, uh, the draft comments I get back are usually because I've broadened it. They may come up and say uh, it was a, again, we've got a blue widget for doing X. Uh, I might have put in their yellow, purple, and uh, green widgets. And then when they see those variations, they might say, you know what, I think also this is possible. And uh, I do occasionally see revisions as that. Um, it's been a long time since somebody comes back and says you've gotten this wrong. Uh, uh, but if it's wrong, it needs to be revised. And because we're under a cap structure, that's not on you to pay for. 
Um, inventors uh, really need to review these, and they're going to have to sign off that they understood the application and the claims at some point as we file, when we file. So once we agree on the draft, well, the drafting process is done, and we're getting ready to file. Uh, we're going to talk about filing in a minute, but let's talk about the fees you've incurred at this point. At this point, what you've, what you've, all you've incurred is the attorney time for drafting the application. So you've incurred the attorney fees up to the agreed on cap at this point. Um, as we go forward, I am pulling this out of nowhere really, but let's, we're going to assume that, uh, let's just assume the attorney's fees for drafting the application is 10,000 or 10K. Um, that's just going to be for, you know, that's the, that's the one that can really vary. Uh, but that's going to be for cost calculation purposes uh, going forward. But let's say th that's all you've incurred at this point is the attorney's fees. But we're about to file this with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and the United States Patent and Trademark Office is going to charge you for filing it. Now, in theory, the filing fees that you pay the United States Patent and Trademark Office is used to pay the examiners to go out and examine your application and compare it to what they can find out there to see if this is truly patentable. There's also some publication fees, and, or, or not, not publication fees at this point, but uh, there are search fees, and, which is what I just described, and a couple of other fees in there. But it's a government agency, so there's fees. Uh, and we have a pretty good idea of what those fees are today. As I said, though, they tend to increase uh, annually or biannually. Uh, so the filing date comes. We've agreed on this draft, and now we're going to file it. Um, and again, this is the date you submit the application to the United States Patent and Trademark Office. You'll receive a receipt. This is your filing date, and under the current law, that is what's important in determining your rights. Uh, when you invented it isn't very important anymore. It's simply when you file it, that's when you're considered to have uh, incurred any rights at all. Uh, everything before the filing date is potential prior art against you. In other words, uh, the examiner can look at it and say, hey, this existed the day before you filed this, and you're not that new in light of it. Uh, but everything after that filing date doesn't count as prior art. In addition, some of the bars we talked about, and I again refer to that previous podcast, public disclosure, use offers for sale, they all become unimportant at this point with regards to what's in the patent application. You can now go talk about these things. But keep in mind trade secret status. If you're not publishing this application, the application secret between you and the government and you can still keep your trade secret rights right up until you publish it or you start talking about it. So that's sort of a balancing thing. Uh, but anyway, now you got your filing date. So what does the United States Patent and Trademark Office expect you to pay? Well, there's three types of entities, inventorship entities, that the Patent and Trademark Office recognizes, and the fees are different for each one. The first one is a large entity. This is a company that's operating for profit and has 500 or more employees. Okay, so that's going to be your most expensive. These are the bigger companies, and the Patent and Trademark Office is going to charge the most. This applies not just to filing costs. It applies to some of the other fees we're going to talk about in a minute. The second entity is a small entity. This is a nonprofit or less than 500 employees in a profit company. Um, small entity is a lot of uh, the filings are under small entities. Uh, and then there's microentities. Microentities is a little more complicated because you kind of have to submit proof of it. But for microentity status, the gross income of the entity, and that could be just the inventor, has to be less than, at the moment, 
$206,109 per year. I have no idea how they came up with that number. It seems kind of arbitrary. But if your income is less than that and you can prove it, then you get micro-entity status. These are the three entities, large entity, small entity, micro-entity. So for a large entity, the initial filing fee is, at the moment, $1,020. For a small entity, it's $510. And for a micro-entity, it's $255. So if you qualify for small or micro-entity, it's a good idea to take advantage of that. You're saving some money. Now remember, these initial filing fees are not part of the cap structure. The cap structure only applies to the attorney's fees for preparing it. So if you're trying to estimate the cost and you're a large entity, the cost up to filing is going to be the agreed upon cap cost at most and the filing cost. So if you agreed to a cap of 10,000 and that was used in its entirety, you have to say, consider this is going to cost you $10,000 plus $1,020 for $11,020 to file this patent application. And that's only to that point. Okay, so now we filed it with the patent office. Yay, we're going to get a patent, right? We're going to get it fast. No. As I mentioned at the beginning in my spoiler alert, um, it's going to be one to three years, typically, before you hear anything from the patent office other than uh, acknowledging they've received the application. So this is going to sit in a pile waiting for an examiner to get to it. And there's nothing your attorney can do about that unless going in there's some expedited patent procedures. Not usually recommended. They're expensive. They don't expedite it by that much and uh, you can lose your patent rights much easier. Uh, but it is something you can discuss with your patent counsel. But for now just plan on one to three years after the initial filing <clears throat> which probably be the case under uh, expedited as well. <clears throat> Uh, before you even hear anything from the Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, and here's it's kind of a series of bad news here, I guess, is because of the bureaucracy and the way it runs and the amount of information that's out there, it's the vast majority, like 90% plus of the time, the first communication you will get from the Patent and Trademark Office examiner will be a rejection of at least some of the claims, if not all of the claims, and often all of the claims. And at this point, the examiner is just kind of, <clears throat> it's almost like bargaining, uh, uh, you know, bartering. The examiner is coming back and saying, I found this, it looks similar to me, I'm rejecting you. And now you have to have your patent attorney step forward and start explaining to the examiner why your invention is different. And each of those, are, it's called an office action. The response from the examiner is an office action where the examiner says, I don't believe this is patentable because, and then your attorney is going to have to go back and say, no, examiner, one of two things. Well, no, examiner, we are patentable because if you look at our specification and our claims together, we, we claim this and, and it's different. Uh, and we have to show them why it's different. Uh, the other thing we might do, and I'll get to this in another podcast called Parts of a Patent, we could actually amend the claims and change it if that information is in our specification is filed, and again, that's another podcast. Uh, the, the name of that podcast is uh, Parts of a Patent. But uh, we can go in and amend the claims to get around what the examiner is saying. The, in other words, the examiner could come to us and say, I don't think you're patentable because I found this other patent out there, and it's close to yours, and uh, therefore I'm not going to allow this patent. We don't believe you're new enough. 
uh, well, we can go back and if it's in the specification, we can add something to the claims and say, okay, now our claims are different, so please allow this case. Or we might simply go back and say, examiner, we don't believe what you're saying about that reference is true, and we are different. But the point is, the, the vast uh, uh, majority of the time, you're going to have to argue at least one of these office actions, and often two. And on average, it is two rounds. Uh, kind of the first round is to get the examiner's attention, and the second round, um, you go in and, and really start uh, needling and arguing back uh, on a more focused level that, that can you know, more readily allow an issued patent to take place. So this one's harder because you can have, uh, well, you get two office actions, two rounds, if you will, with the examiner for your filing fee, and sometimes you have to pay another fee to continue to argue these. Uh, and I've seen them, you know, it's not typical, but I've seen them where they have five, six rounds and sometimes even more. On average, it's two rounds, two office actions. Each of those is going to cost you $3,000, about somewhere in that range. Depending on the complexity, it might be simpler, much simpler, and it might be less. In some cases, it might be more. But if you want to get an idea of the cost, I would estimate 3000 per office action, and I would estimate two office actions. So that's 6000 So in addition to the fees getting this patent on file and the cost of the, the attorneys preparing it, uh, you got to figure that two to five years from the filing date, you're going to incur another 6K, kind of spread out over a year. This process of responding and receiving or receiving and responding to office actions can take one to two years going back and forth with the examiner. So you're now what? We started one to three years after filing, throw in one to two more years of arguing, and you're looking at, well, that's where I got the two to five years uh, for issuing a patent. Uh, one note here with respect to the office actions, it's highly recommended that you, you press your patent attorneys to have examiner interviews. Don't just throw paper back and forth. The attorney should really get on the phone with the examiner and explain his or her position. And um, it's much more interactive and it's much more effective and often is much more cost effective. Um, by the way, with respect to examiner interviews, I talked about rounds. You're guaranteed two rounds with when you file a patent application. For each set of two rounds, the examiner is also uh, under an obligation to grant at least one examiner interview. And again, highly recommended you take advantage of that. Okay, so let's assume we got through however many office actions it took and the, we finally got the examiner on board. The examiner says, yep, I'm going to allow that. Uh, this is allow the patent to issue. So what you receive from the examiner at that point is a notice of allowance. The, uh, the notice of allowance states that the application has been allowed, in other words, deemed by the examiner to be patentable. Oftentimes, most times, the notice of allowance, the examiner explains why the examiner is allowing it. And then the most important part of a notice of allowance, other than the fact you've just been informed you're most likely going to get a patent, is um, the patent tells, or excuse me, the notice of allowance tells you the patent issue fee due date. Very important. Most, the vast majority, of deadlines with the Patent and Trademark Office can be extended by paying money, of course. Uh, this one can't. If they tell you the issue fee is 1 January 2022, you need to pay that issue fee by 1 January 2022, or the application will be deemed to have gone abandoned, 
which is a shame. And uh, it can be revived, but that's expensive and a complicated procedure. It's really to be avoided. It's also not a great thing to have in what's called the file wrapper of the patent, which is the history of the patent. You don't really want to see a gap in there, even if it's for a day where the application was abandoned. So you definitely want to pay that issue fee on time. Uh, my firm and my department typically pay these 30 days in advance just to make sure we don't face that issue um, of, uh, of abandonment. The other thing about issue fees, and it's actually not issue fees, it's patent issuance, which can be 90 days after you pay the issue fee. But patent issuance, if you wanted to file one of those continuation in parts that I've discussed in earlier presentations, or you wanted to do anything much with this application to change it or add to it, you have to do it before the patent issues. Now, my firm, to avoid problems of losing rights, we will encourage you, if you're going to file a continuation in part or any other continuation of this application, we will encourage you to file that before we pay the issue fee just to be safe. Um, that's probably another podcast, something you need to discuss with your patent attorney once you receive that notice of allowance and as quickly after the notice of allowance as possible. All right, so <clears throat> the notice of allowance and the issue fee is a fee you're paying theoretically to the Patent and Trademark Office to publish your patent application. So it'll be out there for the world to see. There's costs, of course. So now you've got this patent allowed and it's going to issue and they're going to demand money from you to, to issue it. Again, it depends on the type of entity that we're talking about. For a large entity, $1,200 issue fee today, but that could go up. For a small entity, $600 today. And for a micro entity, $300. And those, again, are today's costs, likely to go up uh, and uh, over time. Uh, and so there you go. Now you've got an issued patent. You've got your rights in hand. Great. You've paid off the government. You are all done. Well, no. Unfortunately, the, uh, the Patent and Trademark Office also says, we're going to give you this monopoly right, but over time we're going to make you pay to keep this monopoly right. And so at three and a half years from issuance, seven and a half years, and 11 and a half years, they're going to require more fees from you. Uh, this, is quite, this is going quite a ways out. And the theory here is you're making money off of this monopoly the government's providing you, and, uh, and it, it costs money to keep the patent database going. I don't know. I, I, basically, I think they're just saying, hey, you're making money on this. It's really a tax. Uh, and, and so at three and a half years after the issuance, you've had this patent right for now three and a half years, they're going to charge you uh, uh, what's called a first maintenance fee. For a large entity today, that's $2,000. For a small entity, it's $1,000. And for a micro entity, it's $500. Then at seven and a half years, they're going to say, hey, congratulations, uh, you must be making a lot of money off of this patent. Uh, we're going to charge you more fees. The second maintenance fee, due at seven and a half years for a large entity, is thirty-seven sixty. Uh, for a small entity, it's eighteen eighty, and for a micro entity, it's nine hundred and forty dollars. Uh, and you have to pay that if you want to keep this patent in force after seven and a half years. At eleven and a half years, they think you must be making a lot of money off of this patent, and to keep it in force, we're going to charge you even more money. For a large entity, they want $7,700. For a small entity, they want $3,850. And for a micro entity, they want $1,925. So you have to pay up. Uh, and then, 
for these fees and so forth. Remember, this patent application lasts 20 years from the filing date. One side note here is if your entity status changes, for instance, when you filed the patent, you were a micro entity, and now you're big enough to be classified as a small entity, guess what? You pay small entity fees, not micro entity fees. So let's summarize this patent prosecution timeline, and then we're going to summarize the costs. So when that first call is made to that patent attorney and you say, hey, I'd like to pursue this invention, figure it's going to be 60 to 90 days to when the patent actually gets filed. Try to leave your attorney this time. Now, this can be obviously managed, and we can go into crisis mode and get this thing filed for you. But honestly, you'll get a broader patent and a better job if you can give your attorney that 60 to 90 days. Then once it's filed, you're going to look at two to five years from filing date for the patent to issue. Two to five years later till you actually have patent rights you can assert. And then keep in mind that the patent lifetime is 20 years from the filing date. Now this can get extended by the Patent and Trademark Office, not by anything you necessarily do. If it takes a long time, if we're arguing those office actions for a long time, it takes a long time for that patent to issue, they will extend it by uh, a defined period of time past a certain point. Again, that's going to be very fact-specific, and you need to talk to your patent attorney. Uh, so patent prosecution costs, and I'm, I also, there's a timeline in here too, so you can kind of budget this out in your head. So within 60 to 90 days, when you file that patent application, you're going to have to pay the agreed-to cap. Uh, and for the, for the purposes of this discussion, again, I'm going to assume a $10,000 attorney fee for the patent application. That really isn't indicative or, or necessarily realistic, but let's assume it's a $10,000 patent attorney fee. So you're going to have to pay, if you are a small entity, you're going to have to pay, well, $10,000 plus $510. If you're a large entity, you're going to have to pay $10,000 plus $1,020. And if you're a micro entity, you're going to have to pay $10,000 plus $255. So going in, Realize that within the first 60 to 90 days, you're going to incur for a $10,000 application without excess claims, you're going to incur ten dollars to $13,000 on average. Two to five years after filing, spread out over a year, you're going to pay another $6,000 for those office actions. On average, these are obviously averages. Um, at issuance, you're going to have to pay that issue fee. For, for a large entity, that's 1200 bucks today, 600 for small, 300 for micro. Uh, again, those can change, but this is an added cost. And then at three and a half years, you're going to pay that first maintenance fees, which could be 2000 1000 or 500 today. At seven and a half years, you're going to have to pay uh, that second maintenance fee, which is 3760 1880 and 940 for large, small, and micro, respectively. And at 11 and a half years, you're going to have to pay the third maintenance fee, uh, which is uh, $7,700, $3,850, and 1925 large, small, micro, respectively. Uh, all that adds up. So if we assume a patent application that incurred $10,000 in attorney's fees uh, to prepare, and it had two office actions, each at $3,000, and this is an important side point. If you had three independent claims and 20 total claims, that'll be discussed in a, uh, another, um, another podcast entitled Parts of a Patent. But assume for now you have three independent claims and 20 total claims. Then over 20 years, 
you should use as a ballpark figure, well, if you're a large entity over that 20 years, and actually it's over 11 and a half years plus, over about 15 years, you're going to pay $30,660 or you know, $31,000, which works out to about $1,550, $1,550 per year for the life of the patent. So $1,550 a year for monopoly rights. For a small entity, the cost is in the 23,500 range, you're gonna be paying 1,000, uh, about 1,200 a year uh, for that monopoly right and uh, over the course of the 20 years. And for a micro entity, um, your total costs are gonna be around uh, 19,700 and uh, that works out to about 1990 a year at current rate uh, for each year for 20 years for the monopoly. Um, not cheap, but you know, if you're being granted a monopoly to literally stop people from making, using, or selling your invention, and your invention has value, this can really look like pretty minimal amount per year to maintain that monopoly right. Um, so there you go. Um, I'm going to hit uh, real quick, um, I, I've hit this in other podcasts, and I'm going to hit it again here, uh, where to file. If it's being made in the United States, sold in the United States, or both, of course, a United States patent is going to do it for you. If it's being made in a foreign jurisdiction and being sold in a foreign ju jurisdiction, and it doesn't have to be the same jurisdiction, as long as the U.S. isn't involved in either the making or the selling, then you're going to need a foreign application. And as I've discussed in other podcasts, the thing to do is file that U.S. application and then delay the costs of that foreign filing. You have a year, even if you're going straight into, say, Germany. But there's also this mechanism called the PCT, or Patent Cooperation Treaty, where you can really delay the most significant costs of the foreign filing by up to 30 months. Well, that's good, because hopefully by then you've got revenue from your invention, or you have an idea if your invention really is marketable. So you want to use that PCT uh, if, unless you're absolutely certain you need a German patent as soon as possible, you want to use that PCT mechanism to delay those big costs. Um, part of a business model, really. Um, and then the other thing I'll hit on here that I've hit on in others is um, you want to, if you want to delay these costs or the alternative protection, really, you've got trade secret. Uh, you can listen to my other podcasts, and, and you know the downside to trade secret is it has to stay secret. Um, copyright, uh, particularly for software, but remember that it has to actually be copied. Uh, if they didn't copy it and they, they independently created it, copyright is not going to protect you. You've got trademark in some cases. This could be you know, in, in conjunction with design patent rights um, or, or at least an overlap. A trademark has to be used and is subject to that set of laws. Um, and then there's the idea that you could just simply be the first to market, use your uh, patent budget, and instead use it for marketing and hope you can establish such a dominant name in the market space that uh, people are going to buy your product even if competitors do copy it. That's relatively rare, but uh, if the option's there, it's to be considered. Um, and then the last item I'm going to hit here is remind people that when you file a patent application, as long as you tell 
the patent applicate to patent office that you're not going to publish it and if you're not going to foreign file that's what you should tell them probably i don't know it varies it's very fact specific but if uh as long as you don't tell them they can publish it that patent application remains secret between you and the patent and trademark office and so as long as you don't go out and talk about it you uh are in pretty good shape trade secret wise you're still it's still a secret that can be protected by trade secret of course if you go out and try to market it which is likely and talk about it you are no longer a secret and you lose those trade secret rights then and there okay hopefully that was helpful uh, again this is a general overview these costs will change and your specific circumstances can uh, can very much vary the answer to any questions so you need to contact a competent patent attorney uh, and get answers to those questions but this at least gives you an idea of the timeline and the approximate costs thank you very much this is Phil McKay have a good day